and insecure in the in the things that this word of the Lord is secure and it's our foundation. So hear these words um, from Luke chapter nine, verse fifty-one. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem, and he sent messengers ahead of him, who went and entered a village of the Samaritans to make preparations for him. But the people did not receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? But he turned and rebuked them, and they went on to another village. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead. For as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Lord, thank you for Dan. Thank you for bringing him here um, to share your word with us. I just pray as he um, leads us through this word that you would um, open our ears and our hearts um, just to hear more of your love for us. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Jess. Thank you for having me as well. It's really, really good to be here. It's a real privilege. Um, Do keep your Bibles open, please. Um, Do you mind if I just pray as well, actually? Let me pray, and then uh, let me uh, preach. Father in heaven, in in a world full of voices, so many voices, bombarded by voices, we pray that we might hear your voice this morning. Soften our hard hearts, please. Unstop our deaf ears. Open our blind eyes that we might hear what you're saying to us. And indeed, that we might see something more of the glory and the beauty of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we don't simply want a better grasp of this passage. We want to hear what you are saying to us. So speak, we pray. Amen. You're on a roller coaster and you are plummeting down on your journey of existence in life. And so you do all you can to make sense of it all, to make some meaning out of life, to to find some life. And there you are, arms out, and you you grab some stuff and you, you push it into your life. Maybe you grab a house or a spouse or some kids and Maybe a car and a job and some status, some letters after your name. Maybe a holiday or two just so you can keep going. And and why do you do that? Well, that's because everyone does. That's the story, isn't it? That's what life is about. Taking and grabbing and acquiring and experiencing and finding some... Trying to ignore the fact that we are moving slowly towards a wall of death at the bottom of the slope. And life is short, we're told. Make it count, you're told. Make the most of your time until you hit the wall at the end, we're told. And we're all making it up, but you do what you can before you hit that wall. You make sure you you live life and you don't just exist. 
make sure you squeeze every last drop out of life. And we're all making it up. Then a man comes and he speaks with authority. And he walks onto the pages of history. And he doesn't sound like the other voices. And he comes with extraordinary wisdom and extraordinary kindness. And he makes promises that he keeps. And he seems to have integrity. So have a look down with me to Luke chapter 9. And see something of where you've been in the last few weeks and where you'll be going for the next few. Coming back to chapter 9 first, and we're going to rewind a little bit. Um, We're zooming in on 9 verse 51. It's a, a key pivotal moment in the gospel. It's a new section in Luke. And there you'll see, first point, that we are following a crucified king. Verse 51, when the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. Um, Not many words there, but actually there is so much packed into that sentence. The language of to be taken up, in Bible terms, is often the language of kingship. It's the language of coronation. Maybe, Maybe you watched a bit of TV a few weeks ago and you saw King Charles and A new king lifted up for all to see. Maybe not. But perhaps if we've been reading Luke carefully, that idea of being taken up is not unexpected. It's a picture that's been gently painted for us over the last few chapters. Maybe you've seen it in weeks gone by. It's it's beautiful. This king with authority has arrived. And he's arrived with authority to put a broken world back together. death and disease he even has authority to forgive sins and then there's the icing on the cake almost as if he's transfigured before them Peter James and John and for the disciples the penny has just dropped a few verses ago they've just got it they've just clicked as to who he is 9 verse 18 and 19 who do the crowds say I am he he asked the disciples and they're kind of hedging their bets, aren't they? Well, they answered, well, John the Baptist? Some say Elijah and others, one of the prophets of old. And then he says, but who, what about you? Who do you say I am? And Peter answers, the Christ of God. The penny has dropped. They've worked out who he is. He's the king who's come with authority. Maybe it's worth just popping into a lay-by for a moment, though, because that authority word has, I can easily have a bad press in our days, can't it? We're cynical about leadership. We are twitchy about power and powerful people at the moment. Maybe rightly so. They, they seem to be the ones who struggle to, to govern well. Often they are not doing a good job in many situations. Barely a week goes by. When we don't see something of that in the news, they use their own power for their own benefit, their own selfish means. And you hear the word authority, and we're a bit twitchy, and we're not quite sure, well, what does he want from me? What is this king going to be like? Can I trust him? What's in this for him? What's his game plan? What's he looking for? But again, zoom in again on verse 51. When the days drew near for him to be taken up, he set his face to go to Jerusalem. I said, Jerusalem? What's, what's happening in Jerusalem? Why does that matter? Well, it's, 
It's in Jerusalem, the capital city, that he's going to be crowned. It's not going to be a crown of gold, it's going to be a crown of thorns. It's not going to be a glorious coronation with pomp and ceremony and gold everywhere. It's, it's a cross that he will be hanging upon. That's why they're going to Jerusalem. And again, if you've been paying attention, it's not a surprise in one sense. They're back in the middle of the chapter again, so we're going backwards and forwards a little bit. But back to 9 verse 20 again. Peter answers the Christ of God, the penny drops. And next verse, Jesus strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying, <laughs> Chief priests, scribes, and be killed, and on the third day be raised. So if we've been paying attention, we know he's going to Jerusalem and we know what it's for. The cross isn't some kind of mistake. The cross has always been the plan. And though Jesus hasn't come to, to clamber up and to use his power for his own ego or to feed his own inadequacies or to pull himself up and, and push us down and put us in our place, he's, no, he's come down from the Father's glory, a place of extraordinary honor, a place of safety, that he might pour true life and true freedom. And actually that freedom word is key. For the next few weeks, I don't know how long you're doing the series for, but for the next few weeks and months, you're going to be thinking about discipleship. You, you will be following Jesus to the cross. And it's just worth remembering at this point that that freedom word really matters in Luke. Again, cast your mind back a few months. From the very start of Jesus' public ministry in Galilee, uh, Luke chapter 4, he begins with these words. Do you remember? He, he gets up, he opens the, the scroll from Isaiah, and he says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. <laughs> Freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. So the Messiah has come, the King has come, and why? He's come to bring us freedom. And he's come to bring us life. And there we are, plummeting down on the roller coaster, doing all we can to make sense of it all, doing all we can to find some meaning in life, and grabbing and getting tangled up in stuff and a house and a spouse and some kids and a car and a job and status and letters after our name and, and a holiday or two. And Jesus comes and says to us, listen to me. Listen to me. Come follow me. Listen to my voice. And I will bring you the freedom and the life that you are looking for. In chapters 4 to 9, there's Jesus in Galilee in the north. And his authority has been highlighted and underlined again and again and again. We see he is the king. And then now, 9 verse 51 onwards... You've got kind of 10 chapters or so of travel from the north to the south. 150k? What's that? A super ultra marathon? Galilee in the north, Jerusalem in the south. And as we travel with him, we learn what it means to follow him. And as we travel with him, you'll see that it's hard. At times it is really hard. But you'll see that he is absolutely wonderful. And 
he is absolutely worth it. And there's everyone on the roller coaster, grabbing what they can to make sense of life. And yet as we follow him, we will learn to do things differently. And actually we will see that rather than putting number one first, no, no, we were created to put him first. And that is where you find freedom in life. And we will see paradoxically almost that ours down. To find freedom, we tie ourselves to him. And I don't know you guys that well, hardly at all. Um, but as I've prepared and I've prayed for this morning, my prayer for him has been that if you know him, sorry, for you has been that if you know him already, and I suspect many of you do, as you travel with Jesus from Galilee to Jerusalem, it will almost be as if you will become believers again. You will see how beautiful and how good he is, that you will trust him again. You will And you will see how good he is. And if you don't know him, and my prayer has been that you will want to start following him. Because you will see how good he is. Because you see, that decision that we make to follow Jesus is, in one sense, a once-in-a-lifetime thing. But it's also an every-morning thing, isn't it? Every morning, each and every day, different ages and stages, different seasons, different challenges. And there's the roller coaster, everyone doing what they can to make sense of life. And, and you, no, no, I need to follow Jesus. I'm not going to do it that way. Maybe you're at school or university and you know that following him is costly and, and you're going to stick out and you might lose friends. And that you might be laughed at and people won't take you as seriously as you want. And you know the cost of something of what it means to follow him. Can I say, he is worth it. Maybe you're a bit older, kind of young professional season, and the question revolves around work or family or expectations, <laughs> and there's an easy option of what you could do and what everyone else is doing, grabbing stuff on the roller coaster. Or there's the more difficult option of putting him first, and that will impact the job or the house or the pressure or the schedule or the expectations or the, the relentlessness of life, and all of those things so easily drag us away from him. He is worth it. Maybe you're a bit older. Maybe you're the empty nester or the retiree or, and you've got all this time on your hands and all your mates are thinking about projects and house renovations and holidays and spending the kids' inheritance and all of that. Thinking, if I could just cruise around the Caribbean for a decade, then everything would be fine. Days on the golf course. And yet you know you've got loads left in the tank. There's loads of life in you. Maybe even you're younger and you're thinking, if only I could retire, then I can pull the foot off the brake or put the foot on the brakes a bit and slow down. Actually, keep following him to the end. He is worth it. He is good. And so whoever you are, whatever our age or stage, whatever the season of life, everyone else is there grabbing stuff onto the roller coaster. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to do things his way. So first point, really, following a crucified king kind of just in 9 verse 51, but then the next bit will mean hard decisions. 
And Luke points us to the kind of hard decisions that following Jesus will mean. You see, this is why we need to keep remembering that he's worth it. Because there'll be hard decisions that have to be made. I think there are two broad categories that he gives us. The first one is opposition. And then the second one is transformed priorities. If you're a note taker, and some of you are, so you've got opposition and you've got transformed priorities. Okay? So you've got two halves. We're just starting the second half. Then you've got opposition, and then you've got transformed priorities, and the three bits under transformed. Does that help? Maybe. Stick with me. Opposition. It's striking, isn't it? The first thing that happens, the very first thing that happens, after 9 verse 51, time to be taken up to Jerusalem. They're not really out of the starting blocks. We think it's an easy race, and yet actually there's hurdles and water jumps, and there's opposition. Verse 52 to 56. You see, he sent messengers ahead of them, verse 52, who went for him, but the people didn't receive him because his face was set toward Jerusalem. And when his disciples, James and John, saw it, they said, Lord, we'll come on to this. Do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? Question marks. But he turned and rebuked them. He went to another village. So do you remember they're coming from the north Galilee to south Jerusalem? And the first place they come to really is Samaria. And if you don't know who the Samaritans are, the Samaritans in our day are a group who help people in dark places. They are those who people might ring if they're contemplating suicide. It was started by a pastor in London in the 50s. I didn't know that. Well respected. Do you get the Samaritans over in Belfast? You do? Good, okay. Bible times, Samaritans were very different. They were not well respected at all. They were a group in the north of the kingdom of Israel who 700 years previously, when the land fell to the Assyrians, so they came and they conquered the land. And many of God's people were carted off to Assyria, but some remained and intermarried with the Assyrians and others that the Assyrians brought in. Which means the Samaritans in the north are kind of somewhere in between They are kind of half Jewish, half Gentile. They are lukewarm. They were seen as unfaithful. They were traitors. They had lost their distinction. And geographically, they are the first people that Jesus and the crew meet on the way down south. But there is no red carpet. They are not welcomed. Why? What do you see? Because they were heading to Jerusalem. And then we get this glorious glimpse into the pastoral heart of James and John. It's beautiful. Lord, do you want us to tell fire to come down from heaven and consume them? We think, what's going on, boys? Seriously? That just sounds crazy. I want to give you a couple of reasons why maybe it's not actually that crazy. Um, First one is, I wonder if they have been doing some Bible study and they might have been reading their Old Testaments. Maybe even they are joining dots And they know that the language of calling down fire from heaven is the language of judgment. And actually one place that is really evident and famous is in 2 Kings chapter 1, as you know. Maybe not. King Ahaziah, the king of Samaria, in fact. God's people are there consulting the Baals. They are the false foreign gods. And the prophet Elijah, do you remember? The prophet Elijah comes and he warns them and says, don't consult Baal, what are you doing Consult God. 
He is the one you can trust. And in 2 Kings chapter 1, actually fire from heaven falls on the soldiers. (laughs) Rather than being way off beam, way off track, they know their Bibles, they know their geography, and they are joining the dots. Because they're in Samaria. And God's done that before in Samaria. And maybe even it's more than that. Maybe there's too much credit for James and John, but... Again, Luke 9.51, guys, we need to make the long journey to Jerusalem because it's time for me to be taken up to heaven. And remember what happened to Elijah at the end before he passes the baton on to Elisha? Remember how did Elijah disappear? Go on, it's not rhetorical. What did he do? No, I'm not. (laughs) What happened to Elijah? He, He was taken up to heaven in the chariot. There he was, the fire takes, takes the, there was fire and he was taken up to heaven. I don't know, maybe they've got Elijah on the mind, maybe two kings is familiar, and maybe, maybe they've got fire from heaven going on. So maybe it's not that crazy. Um, the second thing to say, just to try and help them a bit as well, is that of course God's people did expect God's king to come and judge and defeat their enemies. That was part of their expectation, to come and bring righteousness, to reform religious practices, to bring purity. judgment has been entrusted to God's king, to the son, to Jesus. But James and John have got the timing wrong. Jesus' first coming was all about rescue and redemption. He will go to Jerusalem. He will die on the cross. The Father's wrath will be taken by the Son. The tomb will be empty. Reconciliation will be possible. That is the plan. Um, For those who don't trust that rescue plan, for those who are not reconciled, he will come again and he will judge his enemies. And that's going to be an unpopular thing for us to say or to believe. That is not what our ears like to hear. But the Bible never ducks from that reality. Jesus never... Friends, if you have not trusted that rescue plan, again, I don't know you, if you haven't trusted that rescue plan in Christ, today would be an amazing day to do that. Maybe you come along week by week by week, maybe everyone else thinks you're a believer, but actually you know that you've never actually entrusted yourself to Christ. One day he will come and judge. And this is not a game. It's probably worth saying on the way past too that the Samaritans would receive the gospel. So at this point, there's no red carpet for Jesus. But as the pages of scripture turn, things change. John chapter 4, remember the Samaritan woman by the well? One of my favorite stories. But more than that, actually, as Luke becomes Acts, the kind of second half of Luke, and Jesus ascends, remember what he says? He says, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria. On the ends of the earth. And in Acts, you see that happen. You see knees bowing in Samaria. You see lives transformed and freedom found and life received in Samaria as the gospel goes out. But do you notice the opposition, though? Opposition is a reality. I guess you are unlikely to be opposed by Samaritans in increasingly secular Belfast. But you will know the reality of opposition. 
from family, from friends, from colleagues. Maybe you have battle scars and wounds. Maybe the words that they said, the things that they did. As you sought to follow Jesus, you will know something of the opposition. And if you don't already, then I suggest that you might in the future. Where he goes first, we follow. And we ought not be surprised by opposition. So hard decisions, opposition, first half. Second one, it's going to transform our priorities as well. Three little cameos that Luke brings us to highlight that reality. That we've just started following on the way to the cross, 951. We've just seen there's opposition. And now Luke spells out for us the fact that it's going to change our priorities now. This is the small print, if you like. Verse 57 to 60, let me read again. See if you can spot the three little cameos. As they were going along the road, someone said to them, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. To another he said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, no one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit. Ever read the small print when you sign contracts on Apple or whatever? Just thumbprint, just move on, please. Here is Jesus giving us the small print. Here is Jesus spelling out what transformed priorities might look like for us, will look like for us as we follow him to the cross. And as we follow him, it's not just a hobby, is it? It's not just something you do on a Sunday morning, a bit of an added extra in life, a, a bit more air con to make life a bit more comfortable. No, this is the engine. This is what it's all about. And following him changes everything. I'm just going to scratch Maybe these verses might be an opportunity to discuss over coffee this week as you meet with a friend. Or maybe in your missional communities. Or You just chew and you pray together what it means to follow him. Transform priorities. First one, verse 57 to 58, no place to call home. No place to call home. And just as Jesus gave up his home with his father and took on flesh and came to live among us, so following him will change your view of where you call home. Like me. To live like me is to have no real earthly home. And that is really countercultural, isn't it? That is really different from the voices around us. In our entitled world where everyone is stressing and buying houses and upsizing and, and pouring themselves out and right move and bricks and mortar and soft furnishings and Ikea and Jesus says, no, no, you have a forever home, but it's not this side of the sun. Our forever home is with him. Our true home is somewhere different. Doesn't mean that owning a home is wrong. Doesn't mean if you 
have a mortgage, you need to get rid of it and go and rent or get a tent. Or... But maybe to assume that we will own a home is wrong. Or at least it means that we ignore words like this. It kind of puts the cost of living crisis into perspective. It kind of puts the, the concept of a forever home into perspective. Maybe you've got life, I don't know, you've got life all mapped out for the next two decades. All mapped out. You know what you're going to do, you know what's going to happen, where you're going to live, and you've got your non-negotiable list of what the house will look like. I don't know, you've got a, you've got a Pinterest or something with all your favourite soft furnishings. And you know where you're going to live. You know it's going to have four bedrooms. You know there'll be a, a nice garden. You know there'll be some sort of office shed. You know there'll be a big kitchen living area that's going to be at the heart of family life. And then Jesus comes and says this. And they just cut across all of those dreams and ambitions that are so common in life. The world around us, the voices that we hear. What would you be willing to give up for Jesus? Would you be willing to downsize? Would you be willing to rent again if the Lord called you into some kind of role or church plant or something that called for it? So first one, no place to call home. Secondly, no excuse will do, verse 59 to 60. Have a look down. Sounds pretty harsh, doesn't it, Jesus? Come on, read the room. Talk about pastoral insensitivity, Jesus. This poor guy has got his dad, I think, on his deathbed. And Jesus basically says, move on. Nothing to see here. Hey, what's going on? What's happening there? Let me just back up a moment. I want to first sort of try and orientate ourselves in the Bible. And then we'll try and work out what Jesus is doing. Um. The Bible is very clear that how you treat your parents matters, okay? Um, Honouring them is of extraordinary importance. In fact, it's one of the kind of top ten things sometimes that they uh, list in the Ten Commandments. Um, Jesus is angry with Pharisees and the scribes because they neglect their parents. They give their money to God and he blasts them for this practice of korban. So rather than looking after their parents, basically they give money to the church. And Jesus says, no, that is wrong. Paul will encourage believers not to neglect widows, 1 Timothy 5. So how you treat your parents really matters in the scriptures, in the Bible. Okay? Don't use this verse to ignore your folks. Give them a call. But what's going on here with Jesus? I think the point he's making is this. He calls us to give up responsibilities to follow him. It's not that they don't matter anymore. It's just that before him they are relativized. It's just that he comes first now. doesn't mean you ignore your parents. It just means that you love Jesus more. Our parents sit very high up on our list of priorities but they are not at the top. Indeed, neither is your spouse or your kids or anything other than Jesus at the top. And so we can't say, I'm sorry, Jesus, I can't follow you because I've got family responsibilities to deal with. 
Which means for this guy, probably his dad is in his sickbed. He's probably not dead yet, or else this guy wouldn't be outside. He would be in a season of mourning for a month. The fact that he's out and about probably means he's waiting for his dad to die. He's nursing and looking after him. But actually it means that Jesus comes above that in terms of responsibility. The parents and families matter a lot. Jesus matters more. No place to call home. No excuse. Give us 62. No one who puts his hand to the plough and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. And that idea of looking back in the Bible maybe rings a few bells for you. Think, think Lot's wife. Genesis 28, she looks back and she ends up as a pillar of salt. Think the wilderness generation. Looking back, wanting to go back to slavery so they can have vegetables again. In the Bible, to, to look back is really dangerous. Let me just deal with A, B, and C. Then I'll follow you. And Jesus says to us, well, where's your heart? Come on, come and trust me. Come and follow me. You can't do one foot in, one foot out. You can't do sitting on the fence. You can't ride two bikes at the same time. It doesn't work. Come and follow me, he says. Following a crucified king will mean hard decisions. And again, maybe your question at about this time is, is he worth it? If there's going to be opposition like you find in Samaria, if it's going to be costly with transformed priorities, and that's going to shape what I think about houses, what I think about family, what I think about my priorities, is he worth it? And again, back to 951, what kind of a king are we following? Where is he going? Why is he doing it? What kind of a king? He's the kind of king who's laid it all down and giving it all away. And Where is he going? He's going to Jerusalem. Each step on the way us in love. And why? Because of his extraordinary love. And when you know someone loves you, and that someone who loves you asks you to do hard things, and you know it's costly, then maybe because they love you, then we're more likely to follow. But also because he wants to give us life and freedom. And now we are on the roller coaster, grabbing all we can to try and make sense of life, and everyone's doing it, and every, no one knows what they're doing, and And yet Jesus says, follow me, listen to me. It's through through your death, your daily death to self. It's through laying it all down. It's through hitching yourself to me. Freedom that you were made for. And it might be hard. It was hard for him. It's going to be hard for us at times. And there might be opposition and there might be transformed priorities. But he's wonderful. He's worth it. Let's pray.
Lord Jesus, in a world of so many voices, we pray that you might help us to listen to your voice. That you are the kind of king who's come to, in love for his people, lay it all down, pour himself out for us. Thank you that in you we have the life and the freedom that we were made for. And yet, Lord, we confess how easy it can be to listen to the voices. Even to doubt whether it's worth following you or whether we'll keep following you. Help us when there's opposition. Help us to trust you. Help us to be faithful. Help us to cling to you. Help us too when it means transform priorities in the way that we live, the things that we care about, the way that we do life, as opposed to everyone else around us. Reshape our thinking about housing, entitlement to housing. Indeed, reshape our thinking about, about family, perhaps. Help us always to put Jesus first. And priorities, might we not be those who look back because we know how wonderful you are. Because we know that you are worth it. In your name we pray.